Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Christine Trent's addictive mysteries edge into the dark and gothic, Victorian England through the eyes of Violet Harper, the Undertaker heroine of her Lady of Ashes series, or the Nightmare of the Crimea, as seen by Florence Nightingale. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today on The Joys of Binge Reading, Christine talks about the mentor who inspired her to write, and where she's performing Lady of the Lamp, her one-woman show on Florence Nightingale's life. But before we get to Christine, just a quick reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find a full transcript of our chat, plus links to Christine's books and website and the authors she loves to read. But now, here's Christine. Hello there, Christine, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Jenny. I'm so happy to be here. Look, beginning at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided you wanted to write fiction? You might have written other things, but we're focusing on your fiction. If so, what was the catalyst for it? Well, I I actually do indeed have a story like that. I have always been a reader. As a, as a young child, I was a big reader. In fact, my mother got so annoyed with having to read to me all the time that she taught me to read very early just so that I would you know, leave her alone and go read my own books. But writing had never occurred to me until much later in life. I had gone to a used bookstore and there was a sad little box of books sitting on the floor. It said any book, one dollar. And inside that box of books was a cover that really attracted me. And it it looked very royal. It looked like a, a palace on the front. And I picked it out of there. And it was a book called To Dance with Kings by an author uh, by the name of Rosalind Laker. And it was just a, a lovely book. It was historical. It was romantic. It was just wonderful. And very few books make me cry, but that book made me cry. And I was actually inspired to try to find that author. Fortunately, I've got a sister-in-law who works as a librarian, and she tracked down that author's agent. And it turned out the author lived in the UK. And I wrote to that author, care of the agent. I had never done such a thing in my life. And then the author wrote back to me. And that started actually a friendship whereby my husband and I traveled to the UK and visited her And I just got inspired to write by sitting with her and talking with her. And she had had such a long career herself with probably 25 or so books. And that woman was actually the inspiration for me to begin writing myself. What a lovely story. How gorgeous. And now from that, you've got two historical mystery series, Lady of Ashes and Florence Nightingale. And you've got some standalone historical novels as well. So Why did you choose historical fiction for a start and then mystery secondary? Well, as I mentioned, Rosalind Laker, whose real name was Barbara, her books were mostly historical romance. She did write some modern things, but most of them were historical romance, and I adored them. And 
just from picking up her book, I'd always read historical type books and it always interested me. I think a lot of historical readers out there would agree that it's a fun way to learn history, especially when it's done well and done right. And so that was really what got me started on writing historicals in general. But the reason I got into historical mystery is because my fourth book, Lady of Ashes, I actually wrote that as a piece of standalone uh, historical fiction. And then my editor came back to me and said, you know, I think this idea of a Victorian era undertaker would make for a great series. We think that she could solve mysteries herself. Make that happen. And so I did. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And the whole thing about having an undertaker as your key character, I felt that was very brave because a lot of people would probably think, oh, that's a bit more, but I don't know if I want to go there. What gave you that idea? Well, believe it or not, I have a writer friend. She lives out in Oregon on the West Coast of the United States. And we were at a writer conference together one day, and it might have been a little too much Chardonnay, I'm not sure, but she looked at me and she said, you know what would be a really great piece of historical fiction would be something where an undertaker was the heroine of the story. And at first I thought that was fairly peculiar myself, but the more I thought about the idea, the more I embraced it and thought, this really is an unusual topic. I don't think anyone's ever done this before. And so I ran with her idea. Yeah, I think it had anybody done it before. Have you have you discovered that since? I couldn't find that anyone else uh, had done it before. No, no, that's right. Um, and there were women undertakers actually working in those years, weren't there? Well, typically what would have happened, as you can imagine, moving a dead body, I mean, when they say dead weight, <laughs> there's a reason why they call it that. Yeah. And it would, have been, it would have been difficult for a woman to move a body on her own what would have been more likely to have happened is that a woman would have worked in the business with her husband and her husband would have done the, shall we say, heavy lifting in the business and she would have done other things. But women worked alongside their husbands in businesses all the time. Would she have owned it on her own? That might have, that might have been a little more difficult. But for those who read the series, you will see how uh, Violet goes from doing it with her husband to doing it on her own. And I've, I've been really kind of amazed at how people have embraced the idea of it. I do always get the question of whether a woman uh, would have done it or not, but people generally embrace it. And the only time I get uh, pushback when people say that seems a little uh, odd or peculiar of a topic is when I'm doing book signings and events that aren't mystery. Mystery readers completely embrace it and get it from the moment I mention it. Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, just a little aside, I was doing some research into Sacramento and looking through the roles of um, people and occupations in the 1860s in Sacramento. I was actually particularly looking for an undertaking firm and there was a mother and son and what had happened was the husband had died and the son and mother had mm -hmm. taken over the business. So, you know, I'm sure it happened all over the world, that kind of transition. Absolutely. And even today, undertaking businesses or funeral homes, as we call them today, they have traditionally been family run businesses handed down through the generations with sort of their own trade secrets on how they do things. And so uh, I think that's correct that you would often see where a wife would have inherited a business, but she would have needed help. 
as with a son, as you mentioned uh, from your Sacramento business, and she, she would have needed physical help to do it. Yeah, it, 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 as I was reading um, book one in the series, I thought to myself, what a tremendous amount of research you had actually done on all of the fur- funeral sort of uh, traditions and things that they did. And of course, it would be necessary. Did you find that interesting? Did you find it a little bit challenging yourself? It actually is very challenging research. Thank you for asking that question. And the reason why is I just made mention that these businesses tend to be handed down through the generations and they have their own trade secrets. And so therefore it's hard to find those trade secrets. And when I say trade secrets, I mean just the different ways and you know, now now we're we're moving into the morbid here, but just in the different ways that an undertaker might um, sew the mouth shut or lift the chin or position the body, they had their own ways of doing things that they weren't going to share. So it's it's difficult to find that information. And in fact, I even went and interviewed my local uh, undertaker here in town and they were even a little reluctant to talk to me about how things are done. So, you know, it's like a Coca-Cola or something that, that has some big trade secret. Not that anything illicit is being done, just they have their own ways of doing things. And, and they like to be known by their good reputations and they don't like to share the secrets. So it was very difficult research. Sure. Now, um, the Violet series, at the end of book one, you had her going off to Colorado And I was quite interested, oh, gosh, is she now going to become an American undertaker? But you have said that I don't think you really saw it as a series at that point. And then your agent or your editor said to you, oh, we'd like to have another book. So you had to get her back to England again. Tell us about what happened in that that incident. Well, so what happened, as you say, my editor said we would like Viola to, to turn into a detective and solve mysteries. So here's what I want, she said. We're going to leave this book as it is. I want you to get Violet back to England quickly in book two. Don't spend a lot of time on it. Just get her just get her back into the country. So I thought, okay. So I quickly, in book two, created a situation where her mother was ill, uh, living in Brighton, and that she needed to rush back to England uh, because her mother might die. And her mother makes a recovery. Uh, but that is how... Violet returns back to Great Britain. And because she gets wrapped up in solving a mystery, she ends up thinking that maybe she doesn't want to return back to the United States. Sure, sure. So there are now six Violet Harper books. And you've worked quite a close relationship with Queen Victoria into several of them. I I think of them almost as dark Victorian stories because the, the presence of Queen Victoria is quite strong in them. In book one, she's an assistant at Prince Albert's funeral. And in book three, um, the Queen Victoria's companion, John Brown, features quite strongly. Does Victoria hold a special appeal for you? Well, I would say that certainly Queen Victoria defined the age. Uh, you know, having lived so long and having such great influence. But the other thing with Queen Victoria, too, is that she brought mourning into high fashion after her husband died. And so therefore, to me, it just seemed like Violet and Victoria belonged together. Uh, and hey, both of them, their their names start with V.I. So how more perfect can it be than that? But 
Victoria was definitely a very interesting character to me. And I think everybody sort of has their predisposed notions of what she was like and what her relationship with Albert was like and so on and so forth. And I have my own ideas. And I just thought that because she lived for so long, there was plenty of time to explore her and her personality inside books. There's almost a feeling that her insistent, her almost addictive grief was an unhealthy thing. Um, Would you see it that way? I would definitely see it that way. And how I look at it is to the extent that she wanted to do that for herself, it was fine, but she sort of forced everyone around her to do it as well. And so for the first year or so, it was understandable, but it got to where she resented her daughters getting married and having happy weddings. She wanted all of her ladies in waiting in mourning. Uh, she slept with a large picture of Albert on an easel next to her bed for the rest of her life. Um, you know, she had his clothes laid out on his bed. Servants would have to lay his clothes out every day for, I think it was for about 10 years after he died, so that everybody around her was sort of brought into that. And I think that's where it got unhealthy is that there was such impact on everyone surrounding her. That's amazing. I didn't know those details. That that certainly is pretty remarkable. And talking about her relationships, of course, there is the John Brown aspect as well. Now, you say that you don't think for a moment there was any romantic involvement there. Some of the sort of movies and media that surrounded it have tried to build that up a bit. And even at the time, there was rumours and whispers. But right. tell us about your take on that. So my take on it is similar to my take on Marie Antoinette. So there were many rumors after Marie Antoinette's death of her having been involved with a courtier by the name of Axel Fursen. He was a Swedish diplomat. And many people believe she did have a relationship with him. I tend to think she did not. For the same reasons, I don't think Victoria had a relationship with John Brown in that both of these women were queens they were very aware of who they were, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And to have such relationships would have been very unseemly to them. They were very, both were very proper women. I'm not saying that, you know, we can go into great detail about personality flaws and, and things like that. But they were both very uh, proper in their morality, I guess is what I want to say. Very um, traditional and upstanding and both aware of who they were. And I just don't think either one of them had the personality to be doing that. Um, and that's what I think. Yeah, sure. I, I know that we've been talking about Violet, but you do have one of your standalones is the Queen's doll maker, isn't it? And it's it, it focuses on the Marie Antoinette period. Exactly. And in that book, I do have Marie Antoinette involved with Axel Fersen, but in my author's note at the back, I state that I don't actually believe that she had a relationship with him. It just helped my story along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there any particular highlights of your regular research trips that a moment when you've discovered something exciting or come across something that's helped with a plot point in a story just one or two sort of epiphany moments that you've thought in your research or it was really worth digging in here or going to this library or going to this castle or whatever 
Oh, my goodness. So my husband and I have been over to the UK probably, I think we've had eight trips over. And there are certain places that I visit routinely just because they're so wonderful and magnificent. And I would actually say what's been the most helpful, I mean, in addition to walking through magnificent cathedrals and the stately homes and everything else where I can, you know, walk the path of where Violet walks To me, what's actually been really helpful is getting to know actual Britons, to know what their personalities are like, how they react to things, and absolutely delightful people. I just just love them to pieces, and I've been treated so very kindly, and not to uh, put the conversation too far off to one side, but my husband and I were actually in the UK, in London, on September 11th, 2001. Oh, gosh. And... The reaction, of course, we were startled. Uh, uh, We're from the D.C. area. It it was all very overwhelming. We didn't understand what was going on at home. And the way that people in Great Britain opened up their lives, their hearts, their homes, everything to us was absolutely – I could could just never express in words, and typically I have many words, I could never express in words what the people of the United Kingdom were like for us – helping us, helping us make phone calls, um, giving us free access to things, really just an amazing people. And so I, I feel like I'm able to thus bring that person out, those personalities into the books I write um, to try to write just just the what it is the, the, the British people are. I'm so appreciative of being able to write them into my books in addition to being able to, of course, see all the wonderful, magnificent places that um, exist in the country. That's fantastic. And that sort of brings us nicely to your second series, the Florence Nightingale series, because she is a remarkable, iconic woman woman of British history. Um, You've published two books in that series so far, and Florence hasn't got to the Crimean War yet. It's still earlier on in her career. Are you are you planning to take that series right through to the Crimean War? Uh, that is my plan. Of course, we'll see what the publisher's plan is for what she does. But uh, yes, the book two goes right up to the Crimean War. The third book goes into the Crimean War, which of course lasted for a couple of years. And, and obviously that's where Florence had so much impact uh, into nursing and hospitalization and uh, medicine just overall, not just for the United Kingdom, but for the entire world. Um, And so, yes, that she would visit the Crimean War. And I can't wait to show readers what the conditions of the Crimea were really like, because they were worse than anything you could absolutely positively ever imagine in your life. Yeah, yeah. And you you like to dig into these dark places, don't you? I mean, that must have been fairly harrowing research in itself. To see what the average British soldier went through to be in war, as though the war part wasn't bad enough, but the lack of care that the soldiers themselves got was just really distressing. Uh, and yes, it is very dark. Generally speaking, um, and without doing a whole you know recap of the Crimean War, most of them were sent over there without supplies, without enough horses, without any food, without blankets, without medical equipment. There were thousands of 
injured soldiers who were dragged to hospitals where there might be two doctors for a thousand soldiers. Yeah. yeah. So there was just no care. Um, they just died of just all this disease and pestilence and, and, in the United States, we think of our civil wars having been very bad in that respect, but it was nothing compared to what they went through in the Crimean War 20 years earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that you've taken this to a new level and that I, I saw on your website that you do a presentation called Meet the Lady of the Lamp. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Do you actually get dressed up as Florence, do you? I do. I actually took a picture of her of course it's a black and white photo and took it to a seamstress to have a dress made that was as close a replica as I could have done including her headpiece her sleeves I got a replica lamp from the Florence Nightingale Museum in London and I do a first person interpretation with a fairly questionable British accent but I do try and I talk about her as though I am her and recount the the important details of her life for audiences. I love it. That's fantastic. So it's really like a one-woman show, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And I absolutely adore doing it. How wonderful. So how many times have you done it? Uh, I've done it several times. I've got another one coming up in June for the Historical Novel Society's North American Conference. That's my next one. And I'm always I'm always booking those events. Oh, that's fantastic. I do wish you could do it in New Zealand. <laughs> me too. Arrange it for me, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> that's lovely. Look, turning to your wider career, you've declared that like Thomas Jefferson, you can't live without books. And there are some wonderful pictures on your website of the special library extension that you've built on your home to house all the books that you and your husband share together. Um, is this where you also do your writing? It is. And it's very kind of you to, you know, refer to my book collection as something that, you know, we share and we collect because I think it might be a little bit of a, an obsession. But uh, yes, I do write from the library. Uh, we put this edition on our home about 10 years ago. And as my husband was building bookshelves and, and doing things to set it up, we found this little nook inside of it that we thought, you know, this is, it's a tiny little space. I would say it's probably four feet by six feet. And he built me this little desk that's built in and I've got some shelves where I can store some books and get my laptop in there. And, and I sit in this tiny little enclosed space and it's where I do my writing and you can see pictures of it on my website. And I really like it because it keeps me from getting too distracted, you know, other than by my cats, which are a welcome distraction. But uh, it, it keeps me from looking around too much and, and uh, wandering off from my writing during the day. That's great. Look, turning perhaps a little bit more to your wider career, is there one thing you've done more than any other that has been the secret of your success? think about that, I would say the thing that I have tried to do that's been the most difficult, thus I think it has contributed to success, is that I have tried very hard to take criticism and correction from people I respect so that I've tried to not be too 
uh, to use the term precious. I've tried to not be too precious about my writing and to take direction from editors and from my agent and from other writers whom I really respect so that they've been able to help guide and form my writing to be better than it might have been had I really decided that every word I wrote was golden. (laughs) And I think that has helped me a lot to be able to do that and to uh, roll with those sorts of uh, criticisms and things when I've gotten them. Yeah, well, that's great. So no matter how bitter the pill is, I try to swallow it and smile. And learn, yes, that's wonderful. Turning to Christine as the reader, because this is titled The Joys of Binge Reading, Um, who did you like to read when you were younger and who do you read today in terms of your binge reading? Well, so I said I've always read historical fiction, but I suppose when I was younger, you know, I was a Nancy Drew fan, of course. (laughs) Uh, And I don't know if you've ever heard of Freddie the Pig. Have you ever heard of Freddie the Pig? No, no, I haven't. So I loved Freddy the Pig. My mother hated Freddy the Pig. Um, (laughs) Freddy the Pig, you know, lived in a barnyard with all of his other barnyard friends and they had adventures. And I I absolutely loved that as a child. And of course, I loved the usual, you know, Dr. Seuss uh, type things and, and Charlie Brown and Snoopy and all those. But I did begin turning toward historical fiction probably uh, as a late teenager, I would say. Uh, And People that I read now, uh, I really like Margaret George. She writes very large novels, but they're absolutely fantastic. She just came out with a book, the second in her Nero series, which is really not to be missed. I like Tasha Alexander and her Lady Emily series. Uh, Elizabeth Chadwick writes really just accurate, absorbing historical fiction. Uh, I'm going to be in an anthology soon with some other authors that I'm in with them because I like them so much, but uh, that'd be Susanna Kearsley who writes really neat books where it's not time travel, but part of the, part of the action takes place present time. And then you, you switch back in time uh, to get the history behind what's going on in present day. Really good books. Uh, I really like Anna Lee Huber and her lady Darby books. Just, just a really lovely fast reading series. Um, C.S. Harris writes the, um, Sebastian St. Cyr series, which is Regency historical mystery. And those are fast paced and really great reads as well. And I'm sure I could go on all day about other authors, but I would say those are some of my top ones. Yes, I'd have to agree with those names. We've had Anna Lee on and um, C.S. Harris. I've been reading her for years. I'm still kind of on tenterhooks a bit to see how she's going to finally round off that series because there's a mystery there that's got to be solved somehow. And I think, wow, I'm just really interested to see how she's going to do it. (laughs) Sure, sure. (laughs) We're coming to the end of our time, Christine. So circling back to the beginning and looking through your life as a writer, is there anything you do differently second time round? I just wondered, or if you just feel that having done, as, as you've said, listened very hard to the advice you've given, Apart from that, which is obviously a very good way of adjusting yourself as you go along, is there anything you'd change? Um, I would say that generally speaking, my trajectory has been, I've probably been quite blessed actually in that I did sell my first book 
that the first book I ever wrote was The Queen's Dollmaker, and I did manage to sell it inside of about two years, which any aspiring writer will tell you is is really a rather quick sale. So I could not be more blessed and happy about that. I think something I might change is I might have put more of an emphasis on, shall we say, writing faster. I tend to be a little bit slow just because of the historical nature of my books and trying to put historical detail on basically every page, if not every paragraph. And so I wish over the the last 10 years or so that I had written faster so that my backlist was was bigger. And, you know, I do have readers clamoring all the time, where's the next Violet? Where's the next this? Where's the next that? And I wish that I um, had done something to learn to adjust myself to producing more, to getting more output out there. Yeah, there's a big emphasis on that these days, isn't there? And people are, that this thing about binge reading, when they discover an author, they do want to just keep reading their books. Exactly. And we binge television, we binge everything now, don't we? And especially mystery readers, I think... uh, Flat historical fiction readers tend to be a little more, uh, is patient the right word? Whereas for historical mystery readers, they're voracious in how they like to read. I've, I've had readers come to me and say, I read all of your books in a week. and uh, But I can't produce them that quickly. I just can't. <laughs> so, but I'm, I'm very right. appreciative of those readers. So that brings us to a nice segue to talk about what is on your writing program at the moment. What is next for you? What are you working on? And are there any new projects? Actually, there is. And, you know, they say bad luck to start talking about something before it's real. But in addition to working on uh, Florence and Violet, I'm actually, believe it or not, changing gears a little bit. I'm working on a piece of contemporary women's fiction just to change it up shift my brain a little bit to doing something different and uh, I've given a proposal to my agent and we shall see where it goes. Fantastic so in terms of your existing series what's on the publishing schedule? Uh, On the publishing schedule I am starting to write believe it or not a Violet prequel is what I'm starting to write there. I have for 2019 two anthologies coming out where I'm providing Violet stories for the anthologies. There are two of those coming out. The antho- um, One of them being the anthology with Susanna Kearsley, Annalie Huber, and C.S. Harris. The other is an anthology being put out by the Malice Domestic Group. And on May 7th, the next in the Florence Nightingale book will be out, right smack in the middle of National Nurses Week. Oh, great. So you're doing Florence as an indie, are you, at self-publishing? No, no. Florence is... Oh, sorry. No, Florence is is uh, published by Crooked Lane Books. Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could you give us the names of those anthologies or, or at least perhaps even email me with them and we'll make sure that they're in the show notes? Sounds like a plan. That's great. Look, do you enjoy interacting with your readers? And if so, where can they find you online? I, re- I love interacting with readers. I especially like doing it in person. Now, alas, as we've, as we've discussed, I probably won't be in New Zealand anytime soon, but I love going to conferences and signing and meeting people. And honestly, historical readers are just the best. They really are. But I do encourage people to reach out to me through my website. There's a contact 
on christinetrent.com, or you can reach out to me on Facebook, which uh, my handle there is Christine Trent Books. I promise I respond to every email. I respond to every message on Facebook. I always do it. Um, and I love getting email from my readers. Look, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I'm, I'm still thinking about how I can get to see you as Florence sometime, but that's that's something for the future. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Jenny. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Have a good day and, and mind that snow. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.